This morning we continue our series on spiritual warfare and we're at the cross and I have to tell you that over the next couple of weeks we'll be really focusing on a couple of principles of God that really come all the way to the fore when you look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the aftermath of it. We're here in uh, Colossians chapter 2 and you'll notice on the screen that there are some words that are also here. It's actually our theme verse, our mission statement is Colossians 2.7, but we begin in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him who is Christ. On June 13th, Six days before Napoleon was scheduled to reach Paris, the Congress of Vienna declared him to be an outlaw. And a coalition of allied forces began to mobilize to defeat him and his army. Now, Napoleon knew that the only way he could remain in power was if he was able to surprise militarily the allied coalition. And so on Sunday... June 18, 1815, at a town just a little south of modern-day Brussels, Belgium, Napoleon attacked. There were no telegraphs in that day, no cell phones, no satellite phones. All they had was semaphore, flashes of light that spelled out letters. And from that Belgian battlefield... Word was relayed via semaphore to a sailing ship in the middle of the English Channel. And from that ship, the message was then relayed to a position at the top of Winchester Cathedral. And from there, the word of attack was sent all over the countryside of Great Britain. Quickly, the word came that the British armies were under attack. Now, those British armies were a part of the coalition, and the coalition was led by a Britisher by the name of the Duke of Wellington. And so at the top of Westchester, Winchester Cathedral, word came that the attack was on, a fierce battle. 
For hours, there were no other transmissions. And then finally, these words came, Wellington defeated. And as soon as those words were transmitted to the ship and then to the cathedral and then out into the countryside, a great fog bank settled over the English Channel. So all over Great Britain were the words, Wellington defeated. People were in a panic. They began to ask themselves, what does this mean? What will Napoleon do with us? What will this mean? How in the world can we have any hope if our military has been defeated? The nation was plunged into doom. Despair was deep. Panic was real. And it lasted for three whole hours. And then the fog lifted. And the rest of the message was transmitted. Wellington defeated the enemy. And suddenly despair was turned to joy. Suddenly panic went into praise of Wellington and the forces. Fear was turned to joy. Have you ever thought of the cross in terms of Waterloo? Have you ever thought about the fact that just like at Waterloo, the cross was a defeat? And on the face of it, you think, especially as Jesus is hanging there, that Satan has triumphed. The Son of God has succumbed to the greatest weapon that Satan has in his arsenal. It seems as though the matter is settled. The Son of God has been put to death. And then the fog lifts. And early the first day of the week, we discover that God defeated the enemy. Now somebody has said that the cross was in some sense not a battle at all. I mean, how can you call it a war when one side has all of the wisdom, all of the power, all of the dominion? How can you call it a war when one side knows everything that's going to happen because he's orchestrated it according to his eternal plan? But in another sense, it is a war. It's Satan's attack on the character of God. And all through human history, Satan has never relented. He has been on a relentless attack on the character of God. From the time that he begins in the garden with this question, hath God truly said? His, his attack has been relentless. His greatest aim is to smirch the character of God. And yet with every new attack, there is a deeper display of the glory of God. And nowhere is that glory, nowhere is the character and virtue of God seen any clearer than on the cross. In Isaiah chapter 55, the Bible says, quoting the Lord, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, says the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, nowhere is that clearer than at the cross. Now I want you to think about something. How many sermons over your lifetime have you heard on the cross? 
you've been in church very long, you've probably heard at least hundreds, maybe even thousands. But I would submit to you, I bet almost every sermon on the cross dealt with salvation of sinners. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's been the message you've heard. And the problem with that message is that it's careful to get the impression that what Jesus did on the cross for your salvation was the primary reason he went there. But it isn't. Jesus' primary reason in going to the cross was not to save your soul. That was a side benefit. The reason he went to the cross is something much greater than your salvation and mine. Back in 1998, there was a movie that was made in Hollywood. It grossed almost more than any other movie, over a half a billion dollars, and it's still making money. You may remember the story General George Marshall is told that three out of four sons from one family have been killed on the beaches of Normandy in a matter of an hour. Not only that, he finds out that the mother of these three sons has received three successive telegrams on the same day telling her that each one of her sons is dead. And Marshall also discovers that there's one more boy in this family, and he is fighting in France. And so he sends the order to Tom Hanks, Captain John Miller. And he says, find that sole surviving son, Private Ryan, and bring him home safely. Now, it's a compelling story. If it weren't, it wouldn't have made all that money. Unfortunately, it's not true. It never happened. But let me ask you a question. Had it happened, had that story been true, that the one sole surviving son of this family was saved, the Ryan family, would that have been the story of World War II? Would the story of World War II be the safe return of a son is the story of any war, is the main issue of war, the, the salvation of men and women from the battlefield? Or is the main issue the victory over the enemy? You see, my personal salvation is critically important to me. Your personal salvation is critically important to me and you. But you know something? The honor of God is much more important. The honor of the character of God is more important than any of that. It transcends any human interest in the conflict. And Paul knows that. And that's why when he writes the Colossians from prison, all his attention is on one thing, what happens on the cross. For the cross is the place where God proves that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. 
And there's no better thing to do than to dig in to what the cross really is all about. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the claim Paul makes. And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying that for the Christian, all of the legal demands of the law have been satisfied. Those who are once under the penalty of death eternally have had that sentence commuted. The demands of the law have been nullified. That's what Paul's saying. Now, to nullify something means to bring it to an end. It means to bring it to nothing. It's to make it legally void. And what Paul is saying is that's exactly what happens at the cross. All of the legal demands that God ever makes in all of his law are nullified by what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's an amazing claim. Now think of this. Before God ever calls Moses to Sinai, before there is a Moses, before there was an Abraham, before there was an Adam, God had established a law based on his own character, and that law was this, the wages of sin is death. And when Adam and Eve are in the garden, he gives them that law. He says, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And ladies and gentlemen, once God makes that decree, Satan, who has fallen from heaven, is handed his greatest weapon. Not only can he tempt men and women to sin, he can hold the sentence of death over them. And yet here in Colossians 2, Paul declares that through the cross, that sentence of death has been nullified. It's been canceled. You say, how is that possible? And that brings us to point number two. Notice the conviction. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now think of the difference between you and Jesus. Do you think there's some differences? <laughs> in Luke chapter 1, the angel comes to Mary and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most, Most High will overshadow you, and the child born to you shall be called holy. That never happened to your mother. <laughs> Thirty years later, in the waters of baptism, a voice from heaven, the voice of God, calls out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Then three years later, on Mount Hermon, that same voice says, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. 
On nearly every page of every one of the Gospels, we see the perfection of Jesus Christ. His sinlessness, His righteousness, His complete faithfulness to God's law. Think of it. He touches sinners, and He stays clean. He eats with sinners, and He's not defiled. He's anointed by sinners, and yet He never sins. How different from you and me. David said, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. That goes not just for David, but for you and me. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and corrupt above all things. Who can know it? Only one can know it. God, and he knows it's bad. One day the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why is it that you're... Your disciples don't follow the traditions of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Remember what Jesus said to them? It's not what goes into the man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart. In other words, our problem is not on the outside of us. It's on the inside of us. How different from Jesus. His inside, his outside were pure and perfect. And yet notice what Paul says here to the Corinthians. On the cross, his father made him to be sin. That means inside of him and outside of him. His father defiles him. You say, how is that possible? It brings us to the third point. The contention. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You may remember our first week of this series, way back in September, we said effective Bible study is like putting a puzzle piece together with other pieces. The Bible is a unified whole. And in order to understand a particular text, it's critically important to look at all the other texts. Barnhouse said that when you come to a text of Scripture, you should put the rest of Scripture like an inverted pyramid on that text. That's what Paul's doing. That's what he's doing right here. Because Paul remembers... What God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You see what Paul's doing here? He's doing something most Christians never do. He's taking the Bible as a consistent, comprehensive whole. And he sees in the Scripture something profound. What he sees is that God the Father not only determined the time of His Son's death and the place of His Son's death, God the Father determined the means of His Son's death. In Genesis 22, God comes to a father by the name of Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac. Up on a mountain I will show you. And there I want you to sacrifice him to me. And then he says to Abraham, gather together wood. And build an altar there of wood. 
and lay your son down on that wood and put him to death. There's an almost perfect parallel with Father God. He takes his son, his only son, up on a hill. But the main difference is he doesn't make an altar there. He doesn't take pile of wood there. He puts his son on a cross and puts him up so all can see it. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus suffered, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under those Roman soldiers. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was stripped of his clothing. He was made to wear a thorn of crowns. But it's not until those nails are driven through his hands and feet and that cross of wood is dropped in the ground with a thud that he experiences his most excruciating suffering. Why? Because when God sees his son hanging on a tree, he curses him. There hanging on that tree, Jesus becomes an enemy of God. He becomes a violator of God's own law when his body is raised into that Jerusalem sky. All the wrath that God intended to pour out on you and me, he pours out on his own son, and his own son becomes accursed by God. Now think of this. Just one week earlier, the Bible says that a crowd gathers as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, colt. And what do they do? They take pieces of a tree and they throw it in the way so that they can honor Him. They take a tree, pieces of tree, branches to honor Jesus. One week later, the Romans take a tree and they nail Jesus of Nazareth to it. And God uses that tree to curse His own Son. Years ago, there was a liberal preacher whose name is Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was a Baptist. But one day he was preaching in a great Presbyterian church in New York City. And in that sermon he said this, when Jesus cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was mistaken. Because God, his Father, was more near to him in those three hours of darkness than he had ever been before. And in saying that, Fosdick showed his total failure to comprehend the holiness of God, the truth of God's Word, and the nature of the war that Satan has waged against God. You say, how does the cross affect that war? How is the cross an effect of that war? That's the fourth point. <laughs> Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now think about what that means. That means in the death of Christ, the Jews were bit players. That means the Jews who delivered him up 
are relatively unimportant. Even though when they deliver him up, they say, may his blood be upon us and our children. They're still bit players. When the Gentile Romans drive nails in his hands and plunge the spear into his side, it's relatively unimportant. They are completely unimportant if you compare them to the importance of his own father. The Jews didn't put Jesus to death. The Romans didn't truly put Jesus to death. The one who puts him to death is his own father. Isn't that exactly what Paul's saying here? It was the will of the father to crush him. It was the will of the father to put him to grief. Now think about this. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, Satan has tried everything to get Jesus to sin. He tries everything he can to get Jesus to violate his own father's law, but he's unsuccessful. It's not until Jesus is raised on that cross that he becomes sin and he's subject to death. As those soldiers drive those nails Satan must have thought what Napoleon thought just before Waterloo. I'll surprise him. I'll put my greatest weapon against him. And though he is sinless, I'll put him to death. And I'll be done with him. And had Satan been successful in putting Jesus, the sinless one, to death, it would have violated the Word of God, the character of God, and the essence of God. A sinless man would have died. And the character of God would have been impugned because God said the wages of sin is death. If you have no sin, you cannot die. A sinless man would have died and God's character would have been impugned. But Satan doesn't kill him. The Romans don't kill him. The Jews don't kill him. His own father kills him, and by killing him, makes him guilty for all of our sin. And in that one act, Satan faces Napoleon's fate. In that one act, Satan is defeated, and his power is stripped from him. In that one act, God executes on himself all the demands of his law. Satan never sees it coming. Satan is totally shocked by this. You say, immediately? No, I'd say about three days later. No wonder we sing, Jesus paid it all. When we sing that, that's not some poetic hyperbole. That's rock-solid truth. No enemy has any claim over us. No sin, no Satan, no death. That's what Paul's saying here to the Colossians. That's just really just one verse. He says so much more than that. And you know when we'll talk about that? Next week. God says, my ways are not your ways. 
Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. And there is no better place to see the veracity of those words than the cross of His only Son, Jesus Christ. He defeats Satan there. He disarms Satan there. And next week we'll see what else he does. Until then, think about all this. Amen.